Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I'm here with my co-host, Steve Cameron. I'm Ben Myers. How's it going, Steve? It is amazing. We are in Cambridge. (laughs) Pretty big deal. This is a first. We are. We've uh, never left the GTA. (laughs) We've never left the 416. Toronto under construction and I am in Cambridge. First time out of the GTA since December. So it feels good. We're in the 519 Ben Myers home state. (laughs) What? what? Home state. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, a native of Guelph, Ontario. Yes, hanging in Cambridge, yeah, podcasting Cambridge. with the guy from Galt. Been here many hey, times. He's the guy from Galt. Been Ooh. here many times. Preston, center of the world. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> Speaking of things that are great, nice segue. Terrible, terrible segue. Uh, Toronto Under Construction podcast is brought to you by Nizo Studios, the award-winning Nizo Studios. It's the premier one-stop digital studio for all your architectural visualization and scale model needs. Nizo can also help market your project and launch your sales center physically or virtually. Visit NizoStudios.com and ask about LiveSite, their virtual sales center software. It's the media darling, taking the building's industry sales process by storm. Mm, buttery. Sounds what? like I, I got to get that. Yeah, you should get some should, uh, Nizo. I need that for our Scott, project. you're not supposed to talk until we introduce you. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> I fucking ruined it already, pal. <laughs> I'm a rookie. <laughs> One thing I did want to say that we have yes. not done on this podcast yet is we need to thank Nikki, who is yeah. our producer, Ooh. and Ed, who is our... Chief editor, sound engineer. How's that sound, sound engineer? That sounds very, that sounds very chief professional. Producer. Yeah, <laughs> no, you shout out Ed, shout out Nikki. You guys do a great job. Nikki was actually here. I she saw came her. For the t- oh, you I did? I saw her. I saw the, the blue haired wonder. Oh, wow. Yeah. You saw her. Yeah. The freezy. <laughs> Speaking of things that are professional, we have a guest. <laughs> Do we ever. <laughs> this is an exciting day for the podcast called the Toronto Under Construction Podcast because, like I said, we're in the 519 and this is our first guest outside of the 416. But it's a very exciting day for me, Ben, to introduce you to not only one of my favorite clients, but one of my good friends, Scott Higgins. And uh, I've known Scott for the better part of the last decade. Him and I did a deal together. It was his first deal under the Hip Developments banner. But let me tell you a little bit about HIP Developments. They're a multi-residential developer focusing on, obviously, multi-family residential development. Prior to this, he was the vice president of a regional development company and oversaw all aspects of project development and finance. Earlier, he held senior leadership positions with TD Financial Group and Bank of Montreal, overseeing real estate lending activities in southern Ontario. Mr. Higgins managed over $800 million in real estate development and real estate project financing. But let me tell you. If anyone's going to tell the Mr. Higgins story, it best be from Mr. Higgins himself, <laughs> who will do a much better job of what I did, just did. But And he will not hold back. He is an impressive individual straight out of the University of Guelph? McMaster. McMaster, oh yeah, where he started the finance club. And it's a crazy <laughs> story how he got here. But a lender become turned developer... Mr. Higgins, welcome to the show. Nice. Well, thanks, Mr. Higgins and my dad, but thanks for having me. Scott, <laughs> That's great. welcome. This bio you had on your website was pretty sparse, so I didn't get uh, too much good stuff, but why don't, you, why don't we turn it over to you and... Yeah. 
Give us, I, give us the it's backstory. It's pretty sparse because it's pretty sparse. <laughs> Fire away. Listen, uh, I've known, like I said, we've known each other for a long time, so this is exciting. But uh, your story is pretty cool, and we always like to start in the beginning. And uh, before we do that, though, why don't you tell, tell everybody sort of where we're sitting, the building we're in, what's going on sort of around us, and then... Uh, We'll go all the way back to the beginning. Yeah, six, sure. Six well, I mean, thanks for you guys making the trip down. I, this is the first one out of the out of the four one six. So we are in lovely Cambridge, Ontario, and in, we're in our Gaslight District project. So this is a hundred and twenty year old foundry. It was the original economic engine of Galt. They produced safes. They produced uh, transistors and 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 various things to make power for early power plants. Um, but yeah, we bought this thing six years ago now. And, uh, you know, real estate's more death by paper cut than bricks and mortar. And, and so we spent a long time getting approvals. And now we're sitting in some finished office space. Uh, we got our office under construction down here. We got the two res towers on the way. So uh, we're in the midst of delivering a, a pretty impressive project. It's 150,000 feet of commercial and 400 units and two towers that are, are both 20 stories. Not a big deal. Yeah, just a small one. But we are in a, an old brick and beam building. We got a little bit of echo. Um, but let me tell you, this is, uh, this is it's going to be a cool spot. If you're ever in Cambridge, you got to come by the Tapestry Hall. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But why don't you just kind of give us the, uh, you know, the, the, the young, fresh beginnings <laughs> yeah. of Mr. So Higgins. You're, you're, finance you're, guy. you're a young McMaster guy, flowing hair. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> same haircut. That's right. You know? What was your, Nick, what was your haircut? <laughs> Listen, all you guys struggled for a year, and I was crushing it, looking sharp. So you can make your jokes, but I was built. Scott, goals, Scott is sure. making reference to his bald head, but beautiful new beard. The beard's yeah, nice, man. I like beard that. for the first time as kid. couple grays, but not many. No, that's the two kids, two dogs. And a cat and a wife yeah, that'll make some yeah. grays in your beard, but otherwise feeling young and fresh. Yeah. We got but no, I mean, the background for me is I went to Mac uh, only because at that time Western wouldn't let me in. So I uh, decided I'm not to surprised. Go. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a true story. I think Laurier canned me too. So went to McMaster in finance, uh, had a long time uh, banker family. Mom was a banker on the retail side, got into to kind of right down to the start you know, here, here's a teller cashing your checks to mutual fund sales, to mortgages, to this and that. And, and uh, you know, the, the story in real estate, it's kind of a funny one. You mentioned that finance club, but I meet a bunch of buddies at Mac, sort of knew that the world was just as much about networking as it was about brains. And we started a finance club uh, with the Geek. dean. Yeah, it kind of was, I guess. But <laughs> you're, really you're, you're the biggest non-geek geek I've ever met. Those at Mac that remember Dean Conrad. Dean Conrad was one of these red-nosed, drank a bit too much, amazing deans. And he used to drink in the Phoenix. And the Phoenix was the grad pub at Mac, right? So we went to Underground John and the Rat with the two, two young bars. You're the aging Phoenix. yourself, but yeah, go keep going. Listen, it was great. So I, I, I met, we used to drink at the Phoenix. I met the dean of the business school at the Phoenix and said, there's no finance club. If we start a finance club and we get somebody decent that'll come down, will you take them out to dinner? And he said, if you get somebody decent to come down, I'll take them out to dinner. So we had a whole bunch of guests come in and they were all mid-level bankers and this and that. And then we got a senior vice president of TD Bank to come down and give a talk to the finance club, which we had grown to maybe 50 people, mostly just friends. And, uh, and that's why I got my start in real estate because the dean held his word, took us out for dinner. Uh, so we went out uh, downtown Hamilton with the SVP at TD Bank and we all had too much red wine and some steaks and Hamilton's a good, a good Italian dinner town. And by the end of it, he offered me a job in TD Commercial Banking in the real estate group and I was wow. only in third year. So I said, I can't do this, I'll do an internship. And so I joined the bank on an internship and, and, and right into the real estate group. And what was cool at that time is they were building nursing homes everywhere. So I traveled a single guy and I 
just went around the province, like down to Windsor, you stay at the hotel, you go to the casino and you underwrite the construction of a nursing home. And so I did that for four years and then kind of sequentially worked my way through. Tell, through tell us the story. So, it's a pretty cool story. So you're in uh, fourth year and he wanted you to work for him but you had to do your schoolwork and you couldn't do both. So there was some story about how you just <laughs> wrote the exams and skipped all the classes. Well, yeah. So he offered me a full-time job. I said, I can't. You can do an internship. So I did an internship for 18 months. And then they said, we don't want you to get recruited. We want to hire you. We want to keep you on, basically. And I said, I'll keep working, but I want you to make arrangements at the school that I can put 100% of my marks on my final exam and I'll keep working full-time. So in my fourth year, I ran a full-time real estate construction lending book at a Kitchener-Waterloo for TD Bank. Uh, and I I, I had put all my pressure on just passing finals on both semesters for my final year. So I actually didn't go to school in my fourth year and I worked at TD Bank for a whole year. So, wow. That deserves, so that deserves a That's how you pay off student debt right yeah. there. Yeah, no, it's a pretty cool story. Actually, the first time I met Scott, I had to take a deal forward for him for credit. And everyone's like, who is this guy? I've never even heard of him. Doesn't have any experience. I'm like, trust me, I met this guy. He started a finance club in university, dropped out of fourth year and just basically run the, ran the TD book in uh, real estate construction. And my credit group was like, all right, well, I'll take a flyer on this guy. <laughs> <laughs> we should tell that story, how you and I met. Yeah, we should. So let's fast forward. That's so you're a finance days. nerd, became a banker, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Bank sucks. Yeah. So financing, so boring. Who wants to find yeah, no, 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 no. right. Listen, I'm the, I'm the non-banker banker, so I could say. <laughs> you know, banker jokes aside, it's the, if you got a young person coming through, that's the best way to learn the stripes. You see, we were underwriting a, you, you know, we were underwriting a deal a month at minimum, yeah. a new deal a month, oh, minimum. Yeah. So, you know, you spend 10 years doing that, the, the amount of deal, you, you've done five careers in real estate. Now you're, you're not in the weeds, but you get to see the weeds and you get to see what they're doing. So I just, you know, you learn the ropes for a while Absolutely. and then I decided, you know what, I think I can do this. I got, I got some friends, I got some money. Let's go try to start. We had the, Eric who was here earlier, he met, he said he's learned more in the last two months at Cameron Stevens than he has in the last two years at his previous job. He's just like, I'm seeing so much. It's not even, it, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, a testament to our systems and process and training, but it's like the sheer volume of different kinds of deals you're seeing on a daily basis. You don't get that anywhere yeah. else. You no, don't exactly. like you work for a developer, you work on three deals in six years, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and on the lending side, you see it all. And, and you know, on the nice part is everyone has to be your friend. So like when you're the lender, Oh, that's why we're friends. It's true. No, listen, <laughs> we're, we're friends. I thought that you, was Steve, you realize who your true friends are when you leave lending. Cause I had a lot less when I, when I didn't lend money to what I, I take back everything I said so, in the intro. So, uh, okay. So you're a lender, bada boom, bada bing, you have a site and the story goes, there's a napkin and you're sitting with your wife and you sketch it out and there's a vision. Yeah. Tell I us mean, the story. It, it the was, first that, deal. That's kind of it. I mean, the first deal was I partnered with the largest general contractor in, in Southern Ontario, Malua Blamey, but I knew the Malua Blamey construction, uh, family business, 38 years, second generation. I was friends with the second generation because I was lending money to the projects. They were the general contractor on. So they, they had done some development, very little. They wanted to do get into development in a big way. I needed the reputation, guarantee strength, et cetera, behind it. I wasn't going to do that on my own. And so we kind of formed a marriage uh, now 11 years ago. And we started with a, I mean, there's two funny stories, how we met in this project. We started with a condo development called Serene in Guelph, right? And we did the whole sales center. We planned it all as a beautiful building, less Klein, quadrangle, you know, really curved architecture, cast in place. Boy, it was going to be awesome. And we went up against the competing developer at the time and they were selling for 300 bucks a foot and we were trying to sell for 450 bucks a foot. 
and and we got our ass handed to us on sales. We did some, but but what was happening is the sales momentum wasn't there. So we had a choice. We either grind away doing one or two a month. It takes two years to get to pre-sales. And I don't have enough patience. He'll attest to that. I was like, that's not it. We, if we lose sales momentum, if we don't crush a project in the first 30 days, there's no sense hanging on to that project. You'll never get there. I do, rem- I do remember that design. I was like, this is a beautiful design. Oh, this price. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, so we learned that people, there's, there's a level to what people want to pay. And you can do a boutique 40 unit building that way, no problem. But this was 160 unit building yeah and very, so we, very big for Guelph very big for Guelph yeah because yeah, you were from there you yeah. would know so within a short period of time we, we we shut that down and we looked around and we said okay what's really selling in South Guelph and at the time it was a lot of student housing was selling the investors were gobbling up anything uh, there was no purpose-built student housing in Guelph at all so we said all right you know what we got to restripe this thing we're going to do it as student condos and we did we did a project called solstice on Gordon Street. But, you know, signs go up and all of a sudden I get this phone call from Steve Cameron, who I don't know. Cameron <laughs> Stevens, who I don't know. Young whippersnapper. <laughs> and, uh, and at the time he was a bit of a young whippersnapper. So was I. But, you know, he, he calls and he says, listen, you got to talk to me because because <laughs> Bernie Malul, who's who then is founder of the Malool patriarch Blamey of Construction, Blamey, yeah. Bernie says, you got to give me some time to talk. And this is this is so you can tell a story of <laughs> you how that came about. You have to give me about. some time. I was well, told. I'll give you the back. So I, I was doing, you know, we have a cold call program and for those who know me, I would come for, out of Xerox and Xerox is a, it's a sales culture. So when I joined Cameron Stevens, I learned the business and eventually I said, okay, I got the, you know, I was the analyst, I was the underwriter, I was the account manager. And then it was time to spread my wings in the origination part of, of the business. So I'm like, I'm going to make cold calls. When I was at Xerox, you make cold calls. So I, you know, you find projects and you call guys up. So I called the, obviously you start at the top, you call the CEO or the president or, or the chairman. So I called, uh, Bernie Malul. I'll never forget it. And he goes, you know, I'm giving him the pitch. He's like, oh, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about, but you know what, kid? I like the cut of your jib. You got to give this guy, Scott Higgins, a call. He'll get, he'll, he'll take your call and he'll give you the time of day. And I was like, all right, off I go. So I called Scott. I said, Scott, just talk to Bernie. He said, you got to take my call and uh, hear me out. And you take it from here. Because so, you, you, told, you told the rest of the story and, pretty well. And I'm a relationship lending guy and I had a deep background in finance. So we didn't really need a new banker. And I like to deal with bankers we know and trust and, and this and that. So I didn't know him. So I'm like, ah, shit, I don't want to take this call. But you know what? I take the call and Steve and I are talking. We're getting along. And he's doing the normal sales guy stuff. Like, I can do everything for you on this project. Everything. You name it. We have the best Land, terms. We have the best everything. Finding conditions great. Our <laughs> compliance group's amazing. It's like, you know, puppy dogs and ice cream everywhere. And I said, okay, Steve, I've heard that from every sales. I, I used to pitch that too. <laughs> I've heard that from every sales lender. I said, I tell you what. Normally what happens is I give you a bunch of information. You give me a term sheet. And a term sheet generally... I know it's different now, but at that time, I always viewed term sheets to be not worth the paper they're written on. An LOI. A, a letter of intent yeah, or yeah. something, right? So, so I said, I tell you what, if I give you the information, here are the terms that I want for this deal. If you deliver me a commitment letter, not a term sheet, not an LOI, go straight to commitment. You take the risk on underwriting. You deliver to me what you say you're going to do. I'll take your deal. And I think that's going to send him away, right? Because every lender is, you have to go through LOI to term sheet, to pay a fee, to get into commitment. I loaded up a portal because I know exactly what information you need. I gave it to them all. And I said, go away. I'm thinking I don't hear from this guy again. That's it. And I mean, it was only, it was probably like two weeks, maybe three weeks. It wasn't that long a time. And he calls me back. He says, okay, I got your commitment letter. And I'm off. I was like, it blew me away. I'm like, well, I have to give you the deal now because out here, whatever we say we're going to do, we have to 
have to do. And I didn't want to do the deal with him. I had <laughs> TD Bank and Laurentian Bank set up already. But I told him I would do the deal if he gave me a commitment. And this guy goes, yeah, your boy delivers. What can I say? It was crazy. So that was our, and it was great. We did that first yeah. deal together. We sold out no problem. Investment condos. Yeah. I'll never forget it was, uh, it was it was investor product, but it was it was like purpose built student rental. Did you get the commitment before the sales? It, it, this, the commitment was contingent on the sales, so yeah. it didn't matter when necessarily. I think we had already gone. I think we had. You had some, but you were you were still we were working on the threshold. Them. But there's two yeah. two things I always remember about that. First of all, every deposit in that building was fifty thousand dollars. No matter how much you paid for the unit, you had to put fifty thousand dollars down, which at the time was a lot of money. Like it was a big deposit. It was Probably for Guelph. Twenty percent. Twenty percent, and you had to put fifty grand down to buy a unit. And these guys got it. And the second thing I'll never forget. So they 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 designed these units or these, yeah, these units to have four bedrooms. But obviously if you want to have a residential unit, you need to have a window, but you can't have four exterior facing oh, yeah. units. So he's just, Scott's like, how am I going to get around this? So they had two exterior facing, like on the exterior wall of the building with, with windows and then the internal units and a picture of this, you have like a rectangle and two on the, each corner facing the outside and then two on the inside, like basically facing the corridor and then the living room and the kitchen in the center of this unit. So he put... <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> he put windows in, on the interior windows that open up to, like, the living space. Okay, do, yeah. Do you get, like, yeah, you picture yeah, yeah, this? Yeah, so, yeah. like, so you're in your bedroom and you have a window, floor to ceiling, that opens up to, like, your three other roommates' kitchen in their living room and you get some glimpse of the window through, like, the living we, room. Yeah, we don't build them like that anymore, but... Oh, man, the, 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 the jokes the, that were going around, and I will never forget, Scott walked me through for the first time. He was like, oh, you don't want to bring a girl home from Trappers and forget to put your blind down. You got to <laughs> put the blind down. You got to put your window blinds down. But the, the code oh, was you had, to, you had to have a view to the outside to call it a bedroom. So we were like, well, we can give it a view to the outside if we just make an interior window. And uh, the market, you know, and that's still a successful building. It's still full. When you're when you're a student, yeah. you know, it's all about what you're paying, right? You know, it's like, do I really need a window, right? It's just like, oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Think about where you live. Like, I lived in some dungy, dungy, way dungier places. Like, those are beautiful brand new units, and yeah, they're still nice. New, like, it's cool like a new condo cool with gym. amenities. You're, you're, on the bus you're line. staying up till 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. You, you don't want the sun coming in, you know? That's true. <laughs> you want to be able to sleep in to noon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, that's how Scotty, Scott and I met, and, you you know, we've done, uh, I don't know how many projects since then. It's got to be at least I 10. Know. I think, yeah, 10, probably. 10, 15 I mean, financings. closed out 15, 16 buildings. I bet you guys have been on half to two-thirds of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. It's been, it's been a good run. Yeah. Ben? Yeah, well, you I guess... Me, want me to keep going uh, with him yeah, here? Yeah, or, you, yeah, or do you no, want I mean, to talk uh, about some... Him and I are just reminiscing over here. But yeah, maybe no, you can ask some actual yeah, real that's questions. that's good. I mean, uh, obviously, I... I, I I've, you know, the, the market for Guelph really delivered no rental product for years and years and years and years, right? So to, uh, you know, to see, there was like almost an explosion on Gordon of all those like student rental projects. And, and you know, what, I don't know how many you've done in Guelph now, like a huge did, number in yeah, Guelph. Yeah, we did five buildings, you know, two student, but three purpose rental. So, uh, you know, the backstop to, to our business was, you could see cap rate compression coming. So this is 10 years ago, remember, yeah. right? So it was the first time in a long time the math worked to build purpose-built rental. That's how we started our business. You had a whole bunch of uh, pension and institutional money trying to come in to buy apartments. Nobody had ever built them since NDP grant programs 25 years ago. Everybody forgot how. And I was the banker to a bunch of London families that still built rental. Yeah, there was a pocket in London. London's and a pocket. the only place in the crazy, entire right? province where people are building rental buildings. the country was Halifax. 
five, there was a group in Halifax, two, two companies in Halifax and maybe like four or five companies in London. And, and I was the banker to a lot of those families. So you could see the math, what they did. You could see how it proved out. And, and so how we really started, I mean, we did the student stuff early, but then we built our business on, on the rental. We partnered with Killam Reit, um, Killam Properties. And uh, I mean, I got to tell a story because it's funny. So I basically said to the construction guys, you build anything with a roof. They weren't married to a structural system. ICF was cool at that time. Hambro systems were cool at that time. These guys would build, didn't matter, cast, precast. They'd explore everything, find the right number. So I had a ton of knowledge and cost certainty on how to deliver a building. I knew the math and the math was starting to get favorable. And so we had a site in Cambridge, but I wasn't ready to raise a lot of outside money to prove it. I, I was like a conservative banker, right? I needed proof of concept. This is the idea. The math can be there. I bet you we can do this. I don't want to invest eight, 10 million bucks to see if we can. I want to, I want to try on somebody else's dollar. <laughs> of uh, course. It's how it works best. So I called uh, Phil Frazier at Killam Properties actually. And Phil's a great guy based in Halifax. And I called him dark because he had bought two buildings in Cambridge, Ontario from um, Carapella from Tricar. I was the banker on those. They're by Riverside Park. And, and so I just, I got the CEO's number of a public REIT from Halifax and called him dark to your cold call. Yeah, I was going to say, the, 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 yeah, yeah, the, the, the so Steve Cameron, what? I love it. And I was like, hey, Phil, I got a site in Cambridge. Uh, you know, I want to sell you the site. And then I want you to engage us in development and construction management to deliver you two apartment buildings, 240 units, six-story buildings, kind of a cool suburban site. And I got his voicemail, so I left the message. And, you know, if I call anybody in Toronto at that time, who are you? You're not getting the phone call back. All right, enough of the snobbing I of love Toronto. Toronto, but I just, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's been like it's five minutes. The, all right, I, I don't mean it like that. But it, listen, it's hard to break through gatekeepers of existing no, right, organizations. Right. 100%. You think I'm going to call him dark? He doesn't know me at the CEO. Yeah, anyway, so the East Coast is different. He calls me back within a day. And he says, okay, you got something? I said, I got something. So we talk a little bit. He says, I'm going to get on a plane. He was in Cambridge within a week. Wow. Right. That is so crazy, we're walking yeah. the site. So we do a deal with Killam. We sell him the site. He, he engages us for development construction management. We deliver the first building. We understand the whole cost structure. At that one, we probably delivered at like a six and a half cap. Market was maybe a five. Was this so, the Saginaw project? Saginaw project. So he's loving the math on this thing. And so we've developed a good friendship. We still stay in touch. And, and so I finally, when we were out there visiting, visiting him, I said to him, listen, why Cambridge? Like, how does a, a guy that owns a whole bunch of apartment buildings in the East Coast, mobile homes in the East Coast, like, what brought you to Cambridge? And, and he says, uh, the reality is my sister married a guy from Cambridge, and I come at Thanksgiving and Christmas. <laughs> and while I was down, I saw two apartment buildings, and I bought them. And then I already had a portfolio there, so it made sense to deal with you. You seemed like you knew the market and, oh. and knew what you were doing. So sometimes these, these business opportunities out. are just like those kind of stories, right? Yeah, it's yeah. so let's, we kind of jumped over one thing, and I think it would be uh, a bit of a shame if we didn't talk a bit about Malul, but, uh, you know, Bernie Malul and his partner started Malul Blaney. They're one of the, I don't know, Ben, do you know course, them or not? Of course, yeah, like yeah. I mean, they're they build the biggest all the large infrastructure. They build all the government buildings. They built half or most of RIM. They built all the big universities out here, you know, U of G, Waterloo, uh, Laurier. But I mean, you have great partners, obviously, and they really, I mean, I know that your hat's off to them all the time, but Tell us a bit about Malul and, and what they've done and how you guys have worked so well together because it's yeah. been a great relationship. No, I, I mean, that's the secret sauce to me on the development one was 
Like that's 38 years of knowledge and ability to build these things. So it's one thing to pen them and raise the capital and think they'll work, but there's a tremendous amount of risk to getting them delivered. And, you know, they've got a staff of almost 200 people. I mean, it's a machine and it's a machine that, that is phenomenal. So we sparked up a partnership. Um, you know, I could bring a certain level of expertise. They had a ton too, but I'll tell you five full-time estimators. Like when we sit down on a piece of dirt, we understand what that project is because we're building for us and for other people. And so to have that, that comfort and that knowledge going in, like right down to little design details of what should go in a building where you're not wasting money, maximizing spans, things like this, you know, they brought that expertise to the table. And, uh, and then the other thing is out here, everything's kind of a handshake deal. So it's, it's, you know, they gave me a tremendous amount of autonomy and respect to just say, all right, we know this piece of the business, you know, that piece of the business, go run it. And, you know, we went from building 110 units, six story, pretty easy things to do to very complex, mixed use, 20 story stuff. And, and then tons of community things, which we're going to talk about later. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys are just salt of the earth, know what they're doing. And that's the bedrock to our, we have seven partners in our business. That's yeah. a lot of partners. So they're printing equity in every one of your deals in? Yeah, equity goes in uh, and we raise outside equity as well. But equity goes in, you know, we have, we have uh, CCDC contracts, you know, con- standard market construction contracts. But just, I, I saw a lot of the bank on how developers think they know the math of development. It probably takes 10 to 15 buildings before you really know the math. Yeah. When, I, when I hear guys are on the third building and like, oh, we're going to we're going to self-perform this building. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, my eyes kind of like open up. I'm like, well, you're very confident in yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? No, it's true. You know, there is a lot of guys. Well, I mean, especially forming people are like, oh, I got a forming company. Oh, I got a drywall company. Oh, I got this. Oh, I got that. And you're like, hey, do you, you might be able to do it, but there's risk with that for sure. Yeah. yeah. A lot of and, they, and those guys have brought a lot of, well, they've de-risked a lot of the stuff and helped, I, I think in the early days too, with just providing some guarantee and covenant in terms of getting those deals done. So yeah. it's, it's a great, it's been a great partnership. And like you said, salt of the earth guys. Yeah. Yeah. Great partnership. And you know, we've, we've grown from one building a year to three buildings a year and now we're eyeing even more acquisitions. Like it, it's worked well, all in Southern Ontario. That's we, we've stayed in our own backyards where we know, we know the trades, we know the politics, we know the market. I think that boots on the ground mentality and, and listen, there are great markets in Southern Ontario. Like that's where the growth has come outside of the GTA is it yeah. consistently pushes West. So Barrie, Guelph, Cambridge, Kitchener-Waterloo, Hamilton. I mean, these are the markets we play in and uh, they've been really, really strong for the last 10 years. I guess my next question would be, I know that you've sold buildings to Northview and to Realstar and, and obviously, you know, uh, partners with, with, with Killam. How's the appetite? Obviously the rental market is, and the, I mean, the GTA is like taking a dump, right? But it's not as bad in, <laughs> in Kitchener, Waterloo, Guelph. It seems like it's, it's held its water. So it's, it's, actually, it's still the same appetite. It kind of went the other way. Like we uh, had our Circa condominium building. We had a hundred unit kind of rental guarantee pool within that building for condominium investors. And, and we occupied in June. So we were in the heart of COVID trying to occupy at, you know, 1850, 1900 a month, one bedroom, best product that exists in Kitchen Waterloo. And we have to do it all virtually, no, no on-person tour and signing leases based on those virtual tours. And we leased 110 units in a month and a half. Oh my God. Wow. um, At those rates. So 
you know, we saw strong demand and then our conventional rental product to, to what we would sell to like real star Daniel Drimmer and, and these types of guys, you know, we're seeing by the time we're done, we're probably 30 to 40% occupied on first occupancy just with pent up demand. And then those buildings are full within six to eight months. Wow. So a ton of, there just wasn't any good rental and and there wasn't a lot of condominiums. So we didn't have a big rental stock yet to compete with. And then you had a lot of people that were at an age where they wanted to transition out of their house into rental, take the equity in their house, live on it in retirement. That was probably about 40% of the, the occupancies of our, of our rental buildings. Yeah. But they wouldn't live in, in those buildings. They wouldn't live in the pre-existing apartment buildings that they knew to be that. So yeah. they'd only go to the new buildings that, you know, our apartment buildings are built as high-end condos, right? We, we don't skimp on the level of amenity or design within these apartment buildings. So then they were comfortable. And most of our units, like our two bedroom units are a thousand to 1100 square feet. Our one bedroom units in the rental side is 650 to 700 square feet. Yeah. Like they're, yeah. they're big units in comparison. Yeah. Whenever to I do studies, I'm always just like blown away. I'm like, your two bedroom is 1200 square feet. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah, we, where do you see that like, now? Our, like, our two bedrooms in Toronto are yeah. 800 square feet. Wow. And now like, you know, cause I do condo uh, consulting, you know, we're recommending two bedroom units at like 580 now. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, it just, it sounds stupid for someone that lives out here, but you know, yeah. Oh, they're the making math. it work. Like, that's where the math took it is construction cost. I don't know that we could, we just toured our gaslight development, which we're, we're at today. You know, that's a 65% two bedroom mix with an average two bedroom size of 1100, as big as 1250 and as small as a thousand. Wow. And that's 65% of the building as condominium sales. We sold a 200 unit building out in two days. And then we launched the second building about 10 months later and sold it out in about three weeks. So there's no way I could build that product again where costs went. But at the time we could do that. So those are like user heavy buildings. You'll never find that condominium stock out here um, again. But yeah, that's the challenge we have as an industry right now is the, the sheer costs of delivery are through the roof. So we shrink footage to try to keep pricing down. But, you know, you, we've shrunk it to the point where is it livable? And and this is the, the, well, the, the, the dilemma the, we have as an industry. Now. One of the other questions I had for you was, you know, obviously I've been doing studies on and off here. Like 2017, there was stuff selling for under 400 bucks a foot. And now you got stuff in Kitchener almost at $800 a foot, right? Like that is bonkers. The pricing here, you know, the unbelievable growth. And I mean, I'm like, is that demand or is that a a cost or is it just a combination of that question too? But it's, it, when I tell people that I'm doing business in Kitchener, Waterloo, and I'm telling them the prices that, you know, we're what the, what you were selling for three years ago versus what you're selling at today. Like people are blown away. People yeah. don't give Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, especially Cambridge. It's like, what's Cambridge? Yeah. Cambridge is basic. We're in Kitchener, Waterloo at this point. It's three, the, the tri city, but the prices are skyrocketing and we are, you know, not far behind Toronto, but people, they can't comprehend it when I tell them that. But yeah, I mean, I mean a lot of that, it is great market. So there's tons of demand, great market. A lot of that is manufacturing a price per foot based on shrinking unit size over the last three or four years. And I'll tell you, we're making less margin on jobs right now, even at those price points than we were before. So as you shrink your footage, your cost structure still goes to the roof because this market didn't trade on land at GFA. It is now just, it used to trade on per unit. That's weird. Your parking ratio is way higher out here. Okay. Now they're starting to drop. They well, were the building next door per, per unit. You got to pay pay for a stall per unit. Development charges per unit per unit. So as we, I remember the hold on back up. I remember the first condo we ever did with Scott. They didn't charge for parking. 
This one, gaslight, no parking. You got you got a free stall, a free parking stall. Yeah, well, free with purchase of a condo unit. There's places one in the GTA that don't don't charge for parking, right? So really? Brampton is just just now charging yeah, for parking, sure. yeah. right? So there's a few of those. I mean, I was just you know looking at your Watson Park project, which was what 130 units or yeah, something, 138, I think, and. Yeah. Uh, like you have 110 outdoor spaces and 48, 50 yeah. underground spaces. I'm like, that's a lot of spaces for yeah. a friggin' rental building. Right? Yeah. The rental buildings, we always did a one, 1. 1.15 to one ratios. Wow. That was the rental buildings. Yeah. The condos, we were always one to one for a long time. Uh, Gaslight was 450 bucks a foot inclusive of parking. Um, but you know, I think the price per foot is strong, but it's a, it's a, it's a misleading metric sometimes because people are really like we're getting unit sizes down to the 450, 475, 500, you know, so that's why you're getting 800 bucks a foot. Yeah. It's probably but some of these super small units. They right? are, but the cost structure on that is way higher. So I, I'm actually tipping our business now to go back to bigger units and a heavier two bedroom mix. Interesting. Um, I think that's where the market's heading. I don't think it's heading smaller. Yeah, I mean, it's the, yeah, I mean, I do work, I mentioned I do work for Baker Real Estate and just, I do five studies a week, yeah. <laughs> right? So I'm looking at unit mix and unit sizing for, for, you know, the biggest, most ambitious projects in the entire GTA to, you know, Bowmanville, Ontario, you know, the far, or the, or St. Catharines or Niagara Falls, right? So looking at all kinds of different markets and I say to myself, how can something be $750 a square foot in Bowmanville and that in Kitchener, Waterloo? I'm like, you know, no offense to the investors that have bought in Bowmanville out there, but you've got to be buying in Kitchener, Waterloo if it's the exact same price. Yeah. I'm like, you've got a community here. You've got, uh, you know, a tech hub, a massively expanding tech hub, right? Um, it just only makes sense that prices are going to continue to increase. Here. Yeah. I mean, for me, when we make a land investment, I follow job growth. That's why I love KW. I love it so much. KW, Guelph is the same. Cambridge, a little bit less, um, but still there because, you know, the, the amount of job growth that has happened in KW and just the talent that the two universities, in particular U of W, is spitting out, you know, we just have all of those employers. We, we need more housing. I could build another two, three projects a year. I just, the market here can't deliver enough. No, not dissimilar to a lot of places right yeah. now, but I always like to find those that have a really, a good growing young demographic and a good job creation. And, and if you can tie, Barry's showing some good signs right now too. If you can find those things, um, you know, the real estate, to your point, there's absorption on the investor sales. That's fine, right? But you need underlying absorption to then make those cash perform for those investors, right? For sure. On the flip or on the leasing. And and so, yeah, KW has been a rock star for the last 10 years. It's great. Yeah, for sure. Let me let me shift gears a little bit here. Sure. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about pricing and costing. But, um, you know, for listeners in Toronto who understand a lot of things that Ben and I talk about, it's the entitlement process, it's the rezoning, it's density, it's local councillors in the constant battle. And I talked about on the last show, um, an application that went in at Young and Davisville on top of a subway station, on top of a subway line, like where you think that density in a city like Toronto should happen. And the local councillors like, I am going to fight this tooth and nail. But your approach has not really been to fight with local councillors, municipality, the mayors. Your approach has been, I believe, and you can answer the question, is to go to the city and say, how can I build a better city? And in exchange for that, you've generally not had many battles. You haven't gone to the OMB many times, if at all. Um, so tell us a little bit about sort of like your approach in terms of city building and, and what that means to you. Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad you asked because I spend 
probably 60% of my time on this versus actual real estate development. I think, uh, especially I'm from Cambridge, you know, born and raised in, in Kitchen Waterloo school in Hamilton. So I'm out here. I, the real estate development industry has uh, a job to do. We build cities, right? The greatest irony in the world is people love their cities and they hate developers. I, yeah. can't, I can't find a better irony yeah. than that, but it's our job to build cities and, and the municipal governments are, they don't have the money to build cities the right way. So we, we look at less profit. I mean, it sounds like such a bad word in, in, in capitalist, but I always joke, I want to be a social capitalist. How much money do you really need? I want to make enough to have a good life. I want to make enough for my kids to have a good life, my employees to have a good life. But then I want to invest in the city because I'm more in small areas like this. You can have a profound effect on how your city is built. We're towns. We're going to be cities. And so 20 years of development legacy, you could you can have a fundamental change that happens. And so I'm really hyper-focused on what our projects can add to the neighborhood, how the ecosystem can grow. I might leave a million bucks on the table in a project to try to get the ecosystem to be stronger because guess what? I'm going to build another 20 buildings in this community. If the community succeeds, there's an ROI to that investment. It's not measured in months. It's measured in years. But if we do it over and over again, we're going to have the success, like you said, of people coming to the university, staying and this and that. So we, we've sort of taken that tack that we want to do things in projects that aren't typical, aren't mandated, uh, are elective, and that try to have a profound impact on the city beyond just the building. And we've been able to show ourselves to be true in that. That's not just bullshit at a council meeting either. We've done it. We're going to continue to do it. And as a result, when we go in and ask for something like here, I said, I need to go from 10 stories to 20 stories and zoning in a historic downtown. And, and the mayor came out, Mayor Craig at the time, Doug Craig, great guy. He came out and he was here at our launch pre OPA and zoning announcing to the community that this project was more important <laughs> or just as important as when Toyota came to Cambridge. Wow. He's a, he was a cheerleader for the project prior to approvals, prior to any approvals, because he knew that we were sincere. We were from here. We'd done it before. We weren't going to let him down. And, and so, you know, we took that approach when they really changed land tribunals, um, and made it a little bit harder for the development community to try to push through that process. We've just said, look, we're not going. When we stand up and ask for something, it's because we need it. And don't worry, our projects are going to be great for the community. And and whether it's in Waterloo or whether it's in Kitchener or Guelph, most of the time we sit in front of council, we get approval. Now, we might work with council too. We don't come in with an iron fist and say it's, it's our way of the highway, but they know that that we're going to do something that that goes beyond just trying to generate maximum profit for our development business. We're going to do something that improves the city. But don't kid yourself, that is an economic strategy for our business because if the city improves, we're going to build that stuff, right? And uh, I just wish more developers played the long game that way. Toronto may be harder because big cruise ship, you add a little bit, tough to turn. You know, out here, a bunch of small towns, you do 20 buildings, 30 buildings over the course of your career. I mean, you've had a profound effect on yeah, the, city's the way the city looks. So give us an example, because I think there are some pretty cool examples of what you're doing. Another thing about you should talk a little bit about the sales launch here at the Gaslight District and, and the Tapestry Hall and yeah, well, we the did. party you threw, like 10,000 people, bare naked ladies, whatever. But yeah. before we get into that, like, like what are some of the, the amenity spaces you're giving back to the community? I think there's a science center in one building and 
tons of other uh, ideas you've yeah, had. Yeah, I mean, we've done a lot on regional identity. I mean, down here in Cambridge, uh, it's creative things, right? So we 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 brought in um, a living architecture installation from Philip Beasley, Beasley at, at U of W, architect, uh, world-renowned artist, was in the ROM for a summer, you know, Toronto City Hall, Nuit Blanc, installations throughout Asia. Uh, that's a million-dollar installation. We registered it in public realm, and it's free for everyone to come and interact with. We then wrote grade school curriculum, so we had grade five, eight, and 10 curriculum written so the school boards can come down and they can start to introduce what it is and get into the STEAM learning, the underlying learnings of of how to create it. Talk about STEAM. You just said STEAM. I know what that is, but you got to define that. I got to define STEAM? Yeah. Uh, Science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Uh, which are the disciplines. Isn't that like a program you created and you got the shirts well, and you I mean, got the kids STEM, in it? STEM and STEAM is a thing. I mean, yeah. that, that's basically the disciplines that our kids need. You know, what we started to do, and this gets into the launch thing that I know you said, the science center. Um, you know, so we invested in things here. I can finish that story. On the STEAM front, um, yeah, I'm a big city culture guy. That's what I like to focus on. So I said, how do we build... I think Canada built basically the best culture that I've seen. We're 55% of the NHL. I'm a, I'm a hockey guy, right? Go Habs. Uh, but I played a lot of hockey growing up. This is up. the only thing that Scott and I don't agree upon. <laughs> yeah, can't we be a Habs fan. On that. Yeah. But every time I come to the Leaf game with you, my Habs get their ass kicked. So well, I'm going to stop irony. You come to my city and that's what happens to you, boys. <laughs> but when I looked at that, my professional hockey crew, well, played a lot of hockey. And I said, you know, the culture was... Um, the activity we did, we did wide enjoyment. We celebrated it. We found outlying talent at a young age. We mentored it. We became the best in the world at something. We built ties within the communities. We identified cultural legacy, cultural identity. What if we just changed the sport? Because there's a lot of kids out there that just don't want to, athletics. Um, you know, what, what if we, but, but science, engineering, arts, technology, math, you know, these things are important. What if we created a steam league? What if we built a, a league that was just like minor hockey, except the activity was fun activities that weren't how strong or fast you were or how a type and aggressive you were. What if they were just fun activities within those disciplines that you did still on a team environment you did at a young age through that. We found aptitude. We harnessed that aptitude through mentorship. We got them aligned with Google locally with Vidyard locally, uh, who sponsored this program. Um, you know, we could, and what if we got parents and volunteers in a coaching, like these tech companies, you know what they struggle with management talent because they come through school, pretty individual basis, not a lot of team activity. They struggle to then bring people together and get them to function as a high performing team. Maybe they should just volunteer as coaches because if you can get a whole bunch of 10 year olds and you understand how to get them to perform, maybe you can translate that into your management talents within Google. So all these things, and we built a steam league. So we launched launch. Uh, and then we said, you know what we need in that is we need the arena of creativity, the arena of steam, but then we need the cultural storytelling. Where's our Sidney Crosby's and Connor McDavid's of Waterloo region. Our kids need to aspire to be. We have the technology, Ben, as you mentioned here, right? All the universities spitting out stuff. Our kids need to see that and know that that can be a path for them. We need to celebrate that stuff. We need to have the Exploratorium in, in San Francisco. We need to have something like that if we're going to be the tech capital, the innovation capital of Canada. And so we said in a project, uh, I, you know, we joked, it's, it's a tower and we were doing 45,000 feet of office. And I said, the last thing I want to do is put a bunch of lawyers in uptown Waterloo again, because there's enough of them. Right. What we need to have is more fun. So let's try to plan this to have a quasi science center with the steam league. You know, we've poured tons of money into those types of initiatives again, to try to get 
the heartbeat of the community to continue to build, to continue to grow. But I think we can be the best in the world in, in science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. If we, if we just treated it the same way as we treat minor hockey. Yeah, that's a, that's you know, a, and then the that's kids amazing. from, from Guelph can come down and Ben and they can play the team from Cambridge <laughs> and we can have the steam cup and we'll have, we'll name our Stanley cup and look what'll happen. Right? Yeah, no, that's amazing. I mean, yeah. uh, Steve and I have talked um, on this podcast a million times about how developers are just seen in such a negative light. And I don't understand how it got turned that way. So many NIMBYs tried to, to make everything about development, about profit, even though they have zero idea how much profit any of these developers make, but they assume that they're all millionaires and, and they all drive, you know, Bentleys everywhere and they're taking advantage of the community. Right. So I, I think it's great that you're, you're really trying to do stuff for the community and put yourself in the good graces of being a community builder and doing things for the community and not just, you know, squeezing every dime out of every unit and take advantage of all these poor people that uh, can't afford a unit. Right. So it's, 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 it's amazing thing that you're doing. And, 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 you know, one conversation that I do, uh, additional, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, but one additional conversation I have is how every developer is always increasing prices by 20% and 20% and 20%. And eventually we're going to get to a point where you can't do that. So it's, it's interesting to hear, uh, finally hear a developer thinking about the long term as opposed to just that next project. You know, there's not an ecosystem in the world that you can keep picking from without adding to that's going to survive. Not one. And nature teaches us that, right? So, you know, we have to continue to try to build that ecosystem of strength and then be the benefactor of it, of building the growth of that strength. So, you know, I just, and we've seen it with the brand to your point on that story, Steve, right? Like I, our last three projects, no sales center, no conventional delivery, nothing. I mean, a gaslight, I said, I'm not going to build a sales center and say, don't worry, you can get 10,000 off, you get in early, you can get a hardwood floor upgrade, blah, 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 blah. I said, I'm, I'm done doing that. This project to me was about rebuilding the energy of my community. So we did this one because I felt like Cambridge lost its confidence. Um, you know, I, I won't get into the, well, it's the pecking order. I always said, like, get into if you, it. If you picked where you want to live 15 years ago around here, it would have been Waterloo first, Cambridge second, Kitchener third. Now, really? Yeah, that was the market. Why is that? I thought Cambridge would be third. Kitchener, no, but Cambridge wasn't at that point. Kitchener was pretty pretty sketchy 20 years ago. Um, but Cambridge always had something. And then I just felt it lost it. And every time a politician, that's why Doug and I got along so well. And now Catherine McGarry, the mayor of Cambridge, and I get along great because she gets it, you know. Along the way, they, they allowed like social media allowed negative and nepotism to creep into the community to the point where it started to lose its confidence. We're sitting right here and right across there, you guys saw the pedestrian bridge today. It was a $1.5 million investment to build a pedestrian bridge so you could stand in the middle of your river as a river city in downtown Gaul and look at it and not have to worry about cars have been past you. And the mayor caught so much flack at the time to try to make a one and a half million dollar investment to build that bridge. And I, I was sick of it. I said, this is not the community I recognize that I grew up in. So I'm going to go buy a five acre piece of dirt with 120 year old buildings. I got to know the owner of this, John Wright, over 10 years, great guy. And he trusted, this was his baby, right? He wasn't going to let it go to anybody. So he trusted to turn it over. And I said, I'm going to shake this city up. I'm going to go, oh, if people think that we can do one building at 10 story, I'm going to do two at 20. And I'm just going to throw the biggest party that this city's ever seen to shake it. 
I need to shake it and give it the confidence that we're fun. We want to have fun. We want to invest in community. We want to get to know strangers. We want a place to play and laugh and these types of things. So I said, this is what this project's all about. So we dreamt up, I mean, where else do you get it? It's basically a small distillery district that no one had developed. That doesn't exist in Ontario other than in maybe a depressed market and Cambridge probably was at that point. So we bought that piece of real estate. And then I said, okay, we're going to do a condo launch. I said, we're going to do two stages. We, we invested. We, we basically said, we're going to spend 700,000 bucks on a party. It's one day and we have no weather backup and it's the third week of September. <laughs> so if it rains that day, I'm an idiot, <laughs> but if it's sunny no backup. that day, yeah. oh man, we got something, you know? So we had Serena Ryder, we had bare naked ladies, and then we had all the locals. So we had a local stage, a bunch of local artists. We had some big headliners. We did a whole day of music. I chartered an air show, flew over top. Uh, we had fighter jets. I was playing like, Top Gun. It was a really cheap party. It was great. We had artists in. We I found a cookbook from 120 years ago from the the New Galt ladies of New Galt did their community cookbook. It was the first community cookbook. We had food demonstrations, cooking those old recipes. We gave out the book. We just had a fun day, and we had 10,000 people show up that day. Everything free. Bring your kids. Bring your thing. We turned it into a night party, all licensed food trucks. You name Uh, it. One of my biggest regrets missing that party. You should have came. I had a wedding, I think, and I was... But at the end of the day, we didn't talk about real estate. We didn't talk about real estate at all. We just said, you know what this project stands for? It stands for reigniting the fun in this community. We sold out. We sold all the units in the first tower in a day and a half. It, they were all sold leading up to that celebration because That's there was 200, so much... 200 units, right? 200 units. Yeah. At, at, and at, at the time, Cambridge didn't have a condo market or not a very big one. And people thought we were nuts, sold out. And what that day turned into is we didn't have to try to sell anything. We just had fun that day as a community. And that energy has stayed with this project. That's like three, four years ago now. And that energy is still here. People identify that this wasn't a district. We named it and we gave it a heartbeat and we threw a party and said, this is what we're going to do long-term. This is what we're going to do. That's why we have the big event center, lots of bars and restaurants, a whole European square, no cars in it. All of these investments where the public art installations are, lots of fun there. And uh, yeah, I mean, people want this stuff. I, I go back, planners, Can I swear on your show? Of course. Okay. (laughs) Planners fucked up everything. 25 years ago, they said, you know what we need as communities? We need live, work, play communities. Everyone knows live, work, play, right? You do a lot of studies. That's what people want. They got the order wrong. You know why? Politicians aren't that smart. I love them. I shouldn't say that. But listen, they <laughs> focus, not cutting that. But they focus on what's in front of them. So when we said live, work, play, they invested in live. We get what that is. They invested in work. We get what that is. And then they had no money left to invest in play. We didn't prioritize it. If we just would have said, you know what we need? We need play, live, work communities. Just say that 25 years ago in every planning textbook that exists across a province. We would have started to value play infrastructure in our cities more. That's not that everyone shouldn't live somewhere and work somewhere. We devalued urban placemaking because we had no money left when we did the practical things of roads and sewers and infrastructure. And now that's not what people want. I mean, you see it now. People want to go. They'll, remote work, wherever, they're going to go where it's fun to live, where they feel connected to the community. 
They'll find a job there. Companies, we don't need to build a highway to say, we have a highway, bring your company here. No, a highway exists everywhere. It's table stakes. That company is going to follow talent. Where's talent going to go? Where it's fun. So our developments now are trying to bring out, I mean, it's the joy experiments, what we're doing. We're trying to bring out joy. If we can build joy, then cities are prosperous. If cities are prosperous, they will grow. We'll continue to build more of that. So it's, it's, it's been a fun journey to try to convince developers, politicians, other people that we just need yeah. to build things yeah. that are more there's, fun. There's a few Toronto planners on Twitter and that I, I tend to agree, uh, disagree with every no, once in a while. Ben, and, uh, disagree? and, you know, do you think that they have, you know, you have these, these park fees and and they want to use them to build these little tiny, these little parkettes, what I call them. And uh, and, the, and the planners, obviously, they defend they defend their book, right? This is my book. I have to defend this book of rules that that how cities should be built. But I want that money to all to go to one giant park. That people, yeah, maybe they got to take a bus to get there. Maybe they got to walk 15 minutes to get there. But it's an amazing park that's super fun. That's got everything to do, as opposed to okay, we put a swing set up in this little tiny corner of your beside your condo building, The best thing about those parks is that everyone has a dog, so you go to it and it's just like the grass is ruined because there's like 300 (laughs) dogs for like 300 square feet, so they're all pissing on the same piece of grass. There's dog shit everywhere. The garbages are full. It's like that park does not service that density. It's kind of bonkers. I I agree with you guys. And we've talked about, obviously, the West Don lands and they build, you know, eight to 12 story buildings around there, all right? You know, you should build this grand promenade, tall towers, get as many people out there, bars, restaurants, fun. I mean, fun is, you know, what else? I mean, those are the places that you want to go to, right? And you want to live close to and you want to be able to walk to and, you know, go out for a coffee and a a patio outside. I mean, that's that stuff that people live for. You can do both though. Like, I I think you can, you you definitely need the grand infrastructure because whittled infrastructure never leads to anything good, right? So your aggregation to build something cool is needed. You know, I think you can do both. People say, I'm not a low taxation guy. It sounds so weird as a capitalist, right? But I'm a, I'm more of my wife's Danish, her family's Danish, and, and we were in Copenhagen a couple of years ago. Scandinavian countries have it the right way. You kind of saw what, what European builders and developers were doing. I think daddy learned more, but we went there. Yeah, we went there yeah. to see Jen's Danish culture, cultural history. Her grandmother had passed a couple of years prior. You know, we met some family there, but we spent two weeks in Copenhagen. So instead of like a two-day stopover, we just went and decided to live there for a couple of weeks, which isn't a, a long time, but really eye-opening because, you know, they, they invest in civic infrastructure. Basically, Gr- Greenberg said, like, how much fun can you have in a city for free? That's the barometer of a city. Boy, have they mastered that. So, I mean, the big takeaways is everyone says, well, that's socialism and they have high taxes. No, it's, <laughs> it's not quite that. It's social capitalism. And yes, they have high taxes, but how much money, Steve, how much money do you spend in your backyard to make your backyard? a private oasis well i just moved so okay how much money are you going to spend in your back i'm gonna spend a lot right and and so not as much as you though people spend a lot for private enjoyment in north america so we want low taxes and private enjoyment and then we're lonely well that's weird there it's like no uh i don't have any amenities in my flat that that is in the heart of copenhagen but i can go have a great time in that city for free for free we're walking down the street and there's trampolines in the middle of the sidewalk and bike paths everywhere. Like, honestly, guys, you could go there and just have the best time of your life. And all you're spending money on is food and booze. But entertainment wise and enjoyment wise, it's unbelievable. What's the proportion of food versus booze? Well, if you're, if you're, with, you're on vacation, so yeah. it's, you're tipping that proportion <laughs> like on its head pretty heavily. So like a $3 hot dog and then, the, you know, and they're hot. Yeah. They're, they got some wheat fucked up hot dogs. Right? Oh yeah. yeah that's Why? A, Sour know, crow. Just weird. No, it's mayonnaise. It's like oh. mayo on a foot long and, and, and nothing else. Yeah, we're laughing. <laughs> Anyways. So, 
So or, there we go. We got some IPAs the from the brewery downstairs. Time Foundry the Brewing Toronto Under Construction IPS. Podcast history. We're delivered beers. Thank you so much. Nice. Good sir. Thank you, Enjoy. Joe. Enjoy. Have a great one. Nice clean pint. Nice. So, right you know, we're alley. we're walking around town, and and there's just all that stuff to do. But I mean, the basic premise is you spend more on tax for communal good, and that way everyone gets to enjoy it. And then you're less pretentious on what you do for a living, and you just meet strangers and have a great time. If I could sum it up, and I'm sure that's like vacation mode synopsis, but there's a big undercurrent of truth to that. So I came back and said, you know, that was the, we need to make cities more fun. And then I started to research what they were doing in the, I mean, I'm a real estate geek. So I was getting into your analysis on built form and unit mix and mechanical systems and things like that. Cause I was curious, you know, and a lot of what I brought back was we can do full building electrification in Canada. We can be the Tesla of real estate and we should be, if, if we know that our transportation grids have to change to be a no carbon future, our buildings need to change. Our buildings are 40% of carbon emissions come from buildings. That's more than cars. People don't know that. So they're all gung-ho to get EV vehicles. Now, the EV vehicles, what it did was it transitioned a consumer economy to understand that electrification of things is efficient. I can change my car. People know now it doesn't cost any more to have an, an EV vehicle. We should probably transition over the next 20, 30, 40 years to have more and more of those. We should do that in buildings too. So I came back having more fun, which was Gaslight District and public installations. And like we worked with a, a Montreal design studio on some crazy stuff happening in the square here with lights and sound and it's, it's all interactive. But I also came back and said, we need to change our building infrastructure on how we're doing things. And the Bright Building, which Steve just mentioned, is our most recent condo. Uh, sold out in June during COVID, no sales center, no in-person stuff, sold uh, 190 units in three weeks. Wow. Um, nobody else shout was out, launching. Shout out Rego. Yeah, yeah. That's Cliff. That's Cliff Rego, Rego Realty, but I mean, great team. You know, we just saw a vibe and we wanted to push that thing forward and... and um, you know, but what we designed there is one of the first all-electric high-rises. Uh, 100% of the car, it, it, it's got a high parking ratio. It's a 0.7 to 1 ratio. 100% of the stalls can be EV vehicles. Uh, again, not dedicated service to each. We found software, a system with software that does demand load sharing because not everyone charges their car at the same time. You just have to be smart. It took us two years to design this building. And now we have a building that is fully electric that runs uh, more efficiently than a gas building just as efficiently, I guess. We invested heavily in the building envelope, right? So that's a key to this scenario is you have to use less fuel to add residual heat and cooling. Um, air source heat pumps, great technology, you know, on-demand electric hot water in suite. But here's what else happens. We got a fully electric high rise that operates just as efficiently. You can wear that as a badge of honor. Then we put a technology system in where you can see your kilowatt usage daily. So you can still control your lights and your blinds and open your door and see if there's visitor parking, all the shit that we're doing in buildings for technology. I can also show you how much energy you're consuming. Then I'm working with sustainable Waterloo region, which is a, a local organization that tries to promote sustainability in buildings working with them to actually gamify the building so that residents can start to earn points and have experiences in the building based on conservation so we we invested heavily in the conservation of lowering the power usage in the building making it all electric building envelope and now we're getting into building the culture in the building from a resident use point of view so that we're not just handing over the keys to a piece of real estate and saying bye we're trying to get the outcome that that thing stood for to 
penetrate the residents so that the residents wear it as a badge of honor and want to keep going down that path. So really, really cool project there. And I think we can do this more and more. So the Toronto Greenwash, I love it. Some of these guys, and it's great. I'm not bad mouthing it, but it's like we have our eco suites on the roof. I did a PV solar array on the roof and it can power six suites on the top floor. Yeah, but the bottom 60 floors is all burning gas for heating and cooling and you're still... You're not quite there yet. I mean, it sounds great in a marketing brochure, but let's get to the real way on how to design for sustainability. So, uh, you know, we probably won't come in. I'm not as rich or as bombastic, I guess, as Elon. But I think, like, we need the revolution in real estate like Tesla forced on on, uh, transportation. We need developers to stand up and force that. So why is nobody doing it? Why are you the the only guy? Like, I mean, are you just smarter than everyone I know? Sounds like you actually... Why bother You might be the smartest guy I know just listening to you here, but, uh, you know, like, why isn't everyone doing it you know if it works why change it that I mean, that's real estate's philosophy i it's, i shouldn't say that it's probably 85 percent of real estate's philosophy i i used to track the low-rise market in brampton and there was developers that used the same floor plans mm-hmm. from 1979 to 1993 <laughs> it's yeah. like the exact same plan in all their communities like why it's it's selling right it's like working, why, would yeah. why would i change, change it? it all right and uh there was you know you, you go out to edmonton and they're doing much more interesting uh um you know elevations and <laughs> floor plans and designs than we were doing in toronto and it's just kind of embarrassing right yeah. and i mean obviously the same you know everyone in the high-rise business is is risk averse, right? You know, if, uh, uh, you know, Steve wanted to make sure he gets his return, right. For his investors. Mm, so, <laughs> but, but, but the return is like, that's just getting into the weeds, right? I'm not, you were not sacrificing return to do these things. Um, it's just trying to slow down and be smart about how, so the, the public installations, we talked about that fun in the gaslight district. Do you know how those are getting paid for? We had to pay cash in little parkland, development does. I went to the mayor and said, you know what you need? An urban park. To your point, right? You have these little vignettes, little parkettes that happen here or there. Ah, not good enough. You know what we need? An urban park. Okay, we have a two-acre square and we have some internal public space. What if I put a public easement over my land in that development so that it was enjoyed for free public use ongoing? And then what if I did installations like in the um, Cartier de Spectac in Montreal, right? In urban installations, interactive. I mean, if you really want to go somewhere fun in Canada, go into Montreal and have a good time. They do public realm probably the best, maybe Vancouver second. So we hired the firm that did most of the installations in Montreal. They were a bunch of old Cirque du Soleil designers and they wow. got together and do public installation work. So we called them and said, we want you to come do a project in Cambridge, Ontario. You know, these things, that was 750,000, the Beasley installation, more than that, another interaction we're doing. So we're probably spending a million and a half to $2 million within the Gaslight District on urban placemaking, interactive installations, world-class, permanent, not gimmicky, not small. I went to the city and said to the mayor, who was our cheerleader right away, uh, Doug, the bureaucracy of the city is going to kill the ability to do an urban park. Why don't I just not pay you the cash in lieu of parkland and invest it in the site, register a public easement over it, and I'll maintain it long term? Would you be interested in that? He said, yes. We're in the strokes of papering that deal with the city right now. But a lot, and I said, you know what we'll do? If you agree to yes, we'll put a million dollars on top of it because we're going to invest in public art and placemaking within the project anyways. Now we can do a $2.5 million investment in urban placemaking. Are you game? Yes. So it didn't cost us 
all that much more. We were already going to do some base level investment for an okay outcome of the project. And we found the city as a partner to restripe their revenue to where it didn't go in to pay for more trees in Riverside Park or another arena somewhere. It went into urban placemaking because they need it because we have a river city and there's nothing to do. We need more things to do. That's amazing. So like, so there's lots of ways. And that was building electric. You just have to slow down and, and really kind of like... And I think the city of Toronto actually has more opportunity for this because of the scale of development, right? Like we can only push the envelope so much because we're doing 200 unit buildings and there's one of them on the site, maybe two. In Toronto, you know, the the gray matter that forms around a 600 unit project is a lot more. But we keep putting it in amenity space inside for only a few people and it creates a pretty boring streetscape. I just did a report for a 4,000 unit community. Wow. (laughs) So, you know, I guess, you know, you're talking about green building. Obviously, we're in the we're in the covid era. Um, do you think developers are going to make many changes to the air quality of their buildings or put a lot of investment into that? Is that something that are, that, that buyers are going to demand? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not... I think the human spirit is the human spirit more social. So I'm not changing a lot of de- design influences in our project to, to institute antisocial features. I'm a, I'm a fan of in-person interaction, meeting strangers. So I'm not doing things that are more barrier driven in our projects. You know, the HVAC systems are already pretty good. I don't think we're seeing that in HVAC, but I'll tell you what we, what we did in the bright building pre COVID, but it launched during COVID. Uh, we went to eight foot balconies so we have eight foot balconies. And if you buy a one bedroom, that's typically about a 24 foot span of outside glass. So in a one bedroom, you have eight feet by 24 foot balcony for your one bedroom suite. It's on, huge. A, on a two bedroom, you have 36 foot spans, usually 36, 38. On a two bedroom unit, you have 36 feet by eight feet on your two bedroom unit. So we have, on average, we have about 25 to almost 30% of our square footage in total living area is outside space versus inside space. We were naturally going down that path already because we felt like people needed a more of an outside connection within high rise living. Uh, we were doing it in our apartments. We, 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 we had moved to eight foot balconies in a lot of projects already because at eight feet, you can get loungers, you can get a table. And so our most recent condominium project has massive terraces. Steve, you toured Gaslight today and you said, yep. those are small balconies in relation to what we did. At but Bright. they're still big and still for huge. Sure. Right? Yeah. So I think, yeah, you know, but the other thing, Ben, is getting down, getting people outside, right? Like it's what's your interactive and this at the street level, how do you get people outside? And to me, the COVID response should be, let's stop doing so many internal amenities in these buildings to where we encourage people never to go outside. How do we spend more money in the community to encourage people to get out in the community? I I don't think our designs are unsafe from air quality or things like that. I just think we need to get people outside more. That's awesome. I like it. Well, so, we're coming up on our hour. We're close to it, but, but, but I have to ask you quickly. I mean, um, you, you've done a lot of things. You've, you've, you've got some very interesting initiatives. We're sitting in the Tapestry Hall. You've got great art installments. You have a brewery. You're working on the, <laughs> uh, the hard water, which is kind of cool. Um, but you also wrote a book. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, oh, you got a website too. With, you could talk about that. I mean, two questions. One, you've, one, you've got the shop local website. So Scott decided to take on Amazon during COVID. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, that, that's one story. And then after you decided to take on Jeff Bezos, you're taking on 
the the book world. Yeah. So, so what's going on with those two uh, initiatives? Well, yeah, I'll go quick. But hey, yeah, let's, let's go quick. Cause we'll go quick because I know it's that. But hey, lo- hey, local.ca. So we, when COVID first came. Uh, again, remember, I'm just I'm a believer that cities are important. Cities are where everything happens. It's where innovation happens, creativity happens, fun happens, everything. And COVID lit fire on e-commerce to the point where I made the joke the other day. And I, I'll say, shoot me if our cities become if it's just skip the dishes, Amazon and Netflix like I'm out. Every city's the same. That's not culture. I'm out. I'm 100 percent out. So. When COVID first came, fine. At a necessity, e-commerce needs to explode, right? Uh, Zoom needs to explode. Netflix is going to explode because it's a short-term crisis. But what it was doing was killing our streets. I hope you didn't short Zoom stocks by any chance. Yeah, you know, don't don't take investment advice from me because I'm I'm brutal. I'm yeah. Uh, <laughs> Actually, Ricky, of all, <laughs> I'm not even gonna, I'm not kidding with you, Ricky. After like nine months of COVID, he's like, "This isn't going to last. I'm going to short Zoom." Yeah, don't so do short Zoom. Don't do that, Ricky. Yeah, the call option was uh, yeah, yeah. pretty hefty. Yeah, that's coming, yeah. that's <laughs> coming quick. Like I know, I know exactly day. where his bonus went. <laughs> the next day. But, you know, what I found is I, I bought bed sheets. Um, so I bought bed sheets on Amazon when we were in lockdown, early lockdown COVID. For who? For home. Oh, yeah. yeah freshen up. <laughs> You're at home every day now. Yeah, right, right. You gotta got to freshen it. shit up. So anyways, I bought, I bought bed sheets and I was mad because I, I should have bought them from a local business, but there was nothing to find them. And so I, I called uh, uh, the marketing company I know does all our development. He's a good buddy. His wife is unbelievable. I called the two of them and said, Justin and Aaron, uh, him and her marketing, great, great vibe. I said, listen, the only problem, I don't know how to do this, but logistics, small business solve logistics, right? The product's already here. Procurement's already here. All they need is a discovery platform to be able to find them and organize that data in a way where you can have a local Amazon. So I said, I'm mad. I don't want to do this. What if I just invest to try to create something? So we created heylocal.ca. Long story short is it's all small business products and services. And you go on and search, but the, the, the algorithm knows where you are. You either input your city or it knows where you are, and it displays the products that are closest to you. So I can go on and do bed sheets, and it's going to show me, if, if they're not in Cambridge, they might be in Guelph. All the shop local stuff was super granola, local made, and it was only to a certain geography, and it didn't talk to the geography next, which means it's fun, but it's never going to last because consumerism is dead at a hyper-local level. You need to continue to expand, but what you want to do is find those things closest to you. So I said, what if we just build this? We found a way. We got 10,000 businesses on it nationally. We're in, wow. tw- we're in, we're in 25 cities, I think, already. Are you in Toronto, or did you stay away from Toronto? It's some in Toronto already. Yeah. Um, you know, and we're trying to grow it and it'll take some time, but it's a cool website. You go there and then what we do is push you to that business owner. So what happens is it searches the information. I type in running shoes. I want to see running shoes. It'll show me a, a whole bunch of cool running shoe shops around here, but I can push out to Guelph. I can push out to Hamilton. I can push out to Toronto. I can keep going until I find what I want, but it's organized to what's closest to me first. And those are the small businesses I can support. Um, and, and then what it does when you check out is it actually pushes you to their online store. Okay, because what marketplaces do is kill the consumer entrepreneur relationship. And it's the entrepreneurs that are heartbeat of our cities. I want you to understand who you're buying from. Amazon, you don't know who you're buying from. I want you to understand. I want you to take that one extra step as a consumer. It's not a pain in the ass. Take it. You'll see them, their store. You might even go into their store to pick up the product because they're close to you. So we built kind of this Kijiji meets Google search meets Amazon. We sort of smashed those three business models together. And, uh, you know, side of the desk, top 
tough to keep pushing, but yeah, we, yeah. that was our response to say, no, we value entrepreneurs, local businesses in cities. This is what makes cities different. They need our help. Let's try to create a platform that they can get on board with. We gave it away for free. There's nothing that they need to pay for. Um, so yeah, cool. I, I hope it grows. I think a lot of people you have are good starting partners to, there. You have a lot of partners, I think, on that, right? You kind of get split it up with all the guys who are working on it, and that's how you kind of grew it. Is that fair? To say? Yeah. Well, no. I mean, the the creepy world of the internet. We grew it through an internet bot that can just go find e-commerce sites well, and organize it. So I don't even. What we learned early on is those businesses were so tired and tapped, their whole world was collapsing. One, we did a, sh- um, um, a Shopify app, so it was like two seconds if you had a Shopify backend to push to this platform. Even that was a little bit of work for them. If they didn't use that, they used WooCommerce and that. We had an account system. They didn't want to do the work to put their stuff up there. No problem. Then we found a bot that could just go scrape their stores and add their products. So they had to do nothing other than claim their account and then subsequently manage that inventory. So we were we were really trying to get ahead of how do we onboard these businesses fast. You know, did a lot up in Barrie, Kitchen Waterloo. But um, that's amazing. I mean, I love I love shopping local, but just the convenience of Amazon being able to order the, everything the, together. The, and, but you want to support the local businesses, so that's so you know, it's all fantastic. To do is try to make that same platform work for you. Yeah. And you know, so th- that's a real estate company to saying, you know what, like cities matter. Their success or our success. This is a time of need. People matter. Well, let's yeah. try our best, right? So, so we're running out of time, but I got to talk about the book. Quickly, yes, the book. Book. got a book, The Joy Experience. The Joy Experiment. Oh, The Joy Experiment. Yeah. Experiment? Experiments. Experiments. Yeah. So there's multiple experiments that happen. Tell me. You got to ear it You know, we, we, uh, Paul Callflesh, a good friend of mine, he's kind of our creative director. So as a real estate company, we have a creative director. Why? Nothing to do with real estate. <laughs> Um, it's because cities are important to us and we need to invest them. So Paul's, you know, been a kind of a mentor when we, we first started doing the gaslight district and like, you know, finding the types of installations and what we should do. He's, he's the ex head of brand uh, management for Blackberry and rim. Right. So he was like pinnacle of global marketing. Um, but great dude. And we've been doing all this stuff. And I said, you know what, Paul, we should probably, we should was probably write a, huh? Was he here today? Paul? No, he wasn't here today. No, okay. no not today. Um, recovering from his COVID vaccine. Oh, he got yeah. sick off the vaccine. No, he didn't get sick. He, didn't. he got it. And I don't know, I guess he just stay at home for a couple of days. No, you're fine after. So um, <laughs> how did he get it? Is he over 60? Yeah, he's over 60. Got it. Yeah. He's a mentor. Right. Yeah. You're, you're a friend. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, Paul and I, we, I said all the stuff we're doing, Steve, like, do you really know how it all fits together? Right. Sort of. I think you do. But a lot of people don't know all these pieces that we're doing and how they fit together. I said, Paul, we should probably write a hip manifesto that just talks about why are we doing all of these things? Why is it important? Uh, Tell our stories so that maybe other people get influenced by our stories and they do something. And so we just started. We started about a year ago now, uh, you know, just writing. And and that turned into almost thought leadership on city building, which then turned into research on other people doing really interesting things. Like you mentioned Edmonton, there's a whole section on Edmonton, make, make it Edmonton. And there's a, a, like a community identity thing that they had done. That's really cool. That's in the book. Um, so we just started documenting people that care about cities and what they're doing to make cities vibrant and what we're doing, uh, at hip, but also, also what others are doing, like the idea of, of play, live, work versus live, work, play. And what that really means, the idea of free streets, how can we make our streets free, 
you know, we knew that Soho was awesome, turned Brooklyn, turned Detroit, anywhere with this cheaper free real estate, something awesome happens. How do we make that a permanent function within a city? And there's ways to do that. So we started writing all these different ideas down and then started researching and calling other people and said, you know, we really think that joy experiments is what this is. We need the world to have more joy experiments. And if we think of joy as a practical outcome, not as a, not as a like tertiary that can come last, but like literally if we put a sewer pipe in the ground and that's practical, how do we invest in joy as a city? How do we make an, the, the infrastructure of joy the same as practical infrastructure? Because that's the economic horizon that we're entering into now. And, and there's lots of places in the U S and in Europe that have done this where they've attracted the most talent. Like we talked about Texas before, right? But there's places in Texas and we went down and we, and we were, it was in, um, Austin and, and we looked at what they did as South by Southwest started, right? The music festival, but what they did for uh, cultural identity and, and, and built that up. And we went down and interviewed them and that was just an audacious claim to be the live music capital of the world. I'm sure Nashville said, fuck you, <laughs> but they did that. That turned into a music scene. They amended policies. Things became cool. Keep it weird vibe. Keep, Keep it weird. weird. Vibe. That's, their, that's their saying. That's their <laughs> saying. It turned into South by Southwest, right? As a music festival, turned into a tech crossover, turned into number two or three for the last whole bunch of years as net in migration of talent turned into corporate attraction. So their economic development strategy was joy and they made it practical. And, and there's a whole bunch of examples across the world where that's happened. And so that's basically the, the premise of the book. And is, where can we uh, find this book? And, well, and more importantly, you know, I mean, it, I like to read, but I also like to listen to books. And if I want to listen to the book, it's it's not out yet. Is there an opportunity for me to listen to yeah, you read so it's gonna be the a, book? It, you, you guys are the king of podcasts and no one wants to take that throne from you, but there will be uh, like a, a, a ho-hum startup podcast that comes for the joy experiment. Scott right is now, starting a podcast on top of right now you go to, <laughs> You go to the... the uh, the joy experiments.ca and register. It's going to be published in about a month. But can, will there be an audio book version where you read the entire book to me? Uh, I'll come to your, <laughs> if you invite me to that new fancy house of yours, okay. I will sit in some leather wing back by the fireplace yeah. and I'll read you bedtime stories in a, in a, uh, in a smoking jacket, <laughs> yeah. smoking a cigar. Yeah, totally. One chapter a night. That's all my kids get. You're not getting any more than that. Wow. Are you going to come every night consensually or, or, well, yeah, consensually? Yeah, consensually? 15, or gonna... 15 chapters. So it might be a two, two week vacation to, to come and read you the book. Yeah. Lindsay's going to love that. Yeah, she'll love it. Yeah. <laughs> Lindsay would do anything for two weeks with you. She would think it's, uh, if you and Jeff came down, two of her favorites. So listen, that's a good place to end the formal part of the conversation. However, the best part of the old interview is <laughs> rapid fire. Rapid Ooh. fire questions. So, I did not research. Yeah. No, so. actually, you're not allowed to research. Okay. That's the best part about it. So we like to uh, spit off a couple questions and give you a, an opportunity to uh, respond in sort of like three to five words only. Very short responses. So we'll just make weird faces if we don't agree with you. <laughs> ben, okay, let's okay. start with you. Oh, this, is, this one is going to hit at your heart. No, it won't. Uh, in an ideal world where we prevent rent gouging, where would you set the rent increase guideline for rent control in Ontario? That's a deep question. I didn't That's know where I go with that. Uh, social capitalism, no rent control. No rent control. Z nothing. Okay. See. But do the right thing. Where would you like to build next? London or Hamilton? Hamilton. Hamilton. Nice. We love the hammer. Yeah. Go what on, is right. a better investment in the future? Student rentals or retirement homes? 
<laughs> post COVID retirement. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna say retirement homes. Oh, he threw me off of this. He was he was he was dodging me there. What is more important to you? Making as much money as possible or living a, a legacy to be remembered forever? <laughs> yeah. That, you know me. I, I'm a legacy guy. There's only so much money I need in Cambridge, buddy. Legacy is the ticket. I love okay. it. Okay, legacy. so you're um, someone's listening to this podcast. They're an aspiring developer, and they want to sharpen their skills. So which one do you think they should uh, put the put the order of these three things that they should uh, they should be uh, concentrating on? Accounting, legal, finance. Finance. Finance number one. Yeah, math wins. Math wins. Yeah. Steve will, Steve will appreciate that and answer. I like that answer. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Although, you know, I have a lot of colleagues who have become either lenders or developers um, who have a law, law degree, and I always look at them as, you know, they get it. They've got a lot to add. They it, The law thing. I mean, managing... There should be a... I, I had a conversation with my dad there. There should be a course in university called Managing Consultants. And just managing, <laughs> like, yeah. the sheer volume of hours that they're going to charge you, and they will run away with your dollars if you don't manage them properly. And it's not just lawyers. It's consultants across the board. So, anyways, that's for another day. Okay, here's a really... Um, Serious question. Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> I wasn't going to oh, ask that okay. one. <laughs> Would you rather fight a hundred duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? I'm going to do a hundred duck-sized horses. And Jen will tell you, I'm petrified. I put Jen in front of a duck that came running at me at Langdon Hall one time, uh, and I may have <laughs> used my wife as a shield. And it was a regular-sized duck, so give me the horses. All right. Okay, <laughs> well, well, we're, we're going to go faster with our rapid fire. Theater room or a co-working room? What's, what, what, what do you prefer in your building? Co-working building? room. What's your favorite sport, hockey or golf? Hockey. Ooh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay, Scott's like a six, no, four handicap, by the way. The guy can hit him. Nice. Nice. Pleasant with the twins. I hit a 325 yard drive in 2007. Yeah, still yeah, the best. I haven't done it again in my life. <laughs> this guy hits 325 yards with his five wood off the fairway, or even out of the rough. It's unbelievable. One thing about good golfers, and this guy's got it. It's like the second shot on a par five. It's like everyone, yeah, you can put your drive 280 yards out there, but could you put your second shot on a par five on the green? Scotty Higgins. No, I three I was a banker for. 12 years and there was a lot of golfing involved. I've been a banker my whole career and I still can't well, even break a hundred. Try harder. Do renters pay more for quality architecture? <sighs> my heart wants to say yes, but I'd say no. Steve? Rumor has it, when you go for lunch or dinner, you like to get a bunch of appetizers and shareable plates for the entire table to share. Unfortunately, COVID has put a huge damper on this style of eating. Do you plan to change your communal eating habits? <laughs> no. Going forward? No. <laughs> <laughs> so you're... Yeah. <laughs> Why do they put all the appetizers on there if you don't want them to try them all? You got to try them. No. If you ever go for lunch or you <laughs> will order every appetizer. Ah, I'm gonna, you, guys, you, like, you guys are hungry, right? His favorite line. You guys are hungry, right? And then he'll just order like every appetizer. And he's like, oh, we don't really need the meals. But like, you know, can you get the steak too and cut that up and we'll all share it. And then like all of a sudden, everyone's just sharing whatever Scott orders. Uh, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big appetizer guy. So uh, we, need to, when, uh, we need to go for that. My favorite so. line when I get home from work and I'm hungry. I'm like, 
happens? Where are the appetizers? She's like, it's Tuesday. It's eight o'clock. I already ate. And your dinner is cold. On the- <laughs> All, right, sorry. All right. What do you think? A couple more? Yeah. Just, A couple more? Just, oh, okay. Okay. Should the government intervene to prevent house prices from rising as fast as they are? Well, they should stop intervening. I think they're intervening now by keeping interest rates at low. But no, I don't want direct intervention. Okay. Anything governments do, they mess up. <laughs> what is your least favorite thing about Toronto developers? <laughs> when, uh, when they come to Kitchen <laughs> <laughs> I think, oh, I, that's perfect. That's a perfect ending. What, what do you think? What do you think? I what love do it. Think? I love it. So I if, they wanna, it. if people want to find your, your, your website, t- tell us, you know, where, where's that? Are you on social media? The book, give us the book one again. Yeah, cool. So check us out at hipdevelopments.ca. Uh, You'll find half our website it has nothing to do with real estate. So check it out. It's half community, half real estate, cool. hipdevelopments.ca. And then the book coming out, you can register at uh, thejoyexperiments.ca. Thejoyexperiments.ca. Beautiful. Well, listen, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. We highly encourage, especially uh, people from Toronto who have not been to Cambridge lately, to come check it out. When will this project be done? When can they come check out the uh, the free courtyard yeah first tower may may june next year and the whole development will be done by october next year awesome amazing come on down highly recommended it's very cool the tapestry hall here which is a big uh, event space if you're getting married uh post-covid hopefully you want to uh look for somewhere to host an office party or birthday party wedding retirement party this is an amazing place to do it the art here is phenomenal you will not be disappointed so and you'll you will have joy you will have joy. You'll be you joyful. And you will have hard more, water. More joy. And you will have yeah. homebrew. <laughs> yeah. And Scott will come because he will want to bring the joy. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Thank well. you Thanks very much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Cheers. See ya.